0: Let's turn today to our New Testament reading. Uh, Again, we're beginning a series on Paul's second letter. Paul's second letter to to Timothy. And so we're reading 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure... Dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, and of love, and of self control. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly, And he found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're beginning today, as I mentioned, a a new series over the next four weeks, looking at Paul's second epistle to Timothy. And I really, truly hope that this will be just the beginning for us as a church and that we'll keep coming back to this uh, very important letter. Of all of Paul's letters, this one seems to me the most intimate and the most tender. And uh, there are a couple things going on here that I need to share with you that set the context for this second epistle. The first is this, that Paul knows that he's at the end of his life. He says in chapter 4, verse 6, that the time of my departure has come. Paul is in a Roman prison and his death sentence is drawing near. You've probably heard the phrase a swan song. In Greek legend, it was told that at the end of a swan's life, it would sing a beautiful song, just like Amelia in uh, in um, Othello. She's Desdemona's uh, Des, uh, servant. When she dies... She says, I will play the swan, and I will die in music. And so these are the last words ever recorded by the Apostle Paul. And as he sees his death just months away perhaps, he warbles out this beautiful letter. The second thing is Paul's deep affection for Timothy. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey while he was in Lystra, and uh, Timothy, we read, was already a disciple when he met Paul, but Paul was so taken by the authenticity of this young man that he immediately asks Timothy to join him and to travel with him on his, uh, his missionary journeys. And Paul's affection for Timothy only grows by leaps and bounds. You recall his letter to the Philippians and what Paul says. He says, I have no one else like him. Everyone else seeks their own. They look out for their own interests, not Christ, but Timothy. Timothy has proved himself. And he labors for the gospel with me, just like a son would work with his father. And that fatherly affection, it deepens as the years go on, and that in his letter now, as you read in chapter 1, he addresses Timothy very tenderly, my beloved son. There are several reasons for Paul writing this letter, but one of them, certainly, is that Paul misses his son. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul wrote, I hope to come to you shortly, but Paul knows now that that's not going to happen. He has Luke with him, but still he misses Timothy sorely. You'll notice in verse 4 of chapter 1 that Paul wants to see Timothy so much because Paul wants to be filled with joy just in seeing his child. I long to see you, he says, so that I may be filled with joy. When Chrysostom, when he comments on this verse, he notes the intensity of Paul's love for Timothy. He says, note now how intensely Paul loves his son. And the Greek word that Paul uses or that Chrysostom uses for intensity is this word menion. It's the same word that Festus uses to describe Paul when he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. Mene, or maine, Paula, maine, Paula, Paul, you're mad. Note, says Chrysostom, how madly Paul desires to see his son in the faith. Now, tradition tells us that Paul had placed Timothy uh, in the important city of Ephesus to be the the bishop, the overseer, the superintendent of this important missionary endeavor, Ephesus and the cities that had surrounded Ephesus. And knowing that he can't get to Ephesus in chapter 4, Paul urges Timothy two times to come to his side very quickly. It's true that Paul wants the parchments. It's true that Paul wants the scrolls. It's true that Paul wants the cloak that he left in Troas because he's cold in that Roman prison and it's only going to get colder before winter comes. And this is why he says, Timothy, please come before winter time. I'm cold here. These things are true. But especially in his hour of trial, Paul wants to be near his true child in the faith. He just wants to see Timothy's face. It's not very different, is it, from our Lord going to the most exacting and demanding trial of his life, and he just wants to be near his three closest friends. Stay near me while I go and pray, Yonder, Or like Aslan approaching the stone table, just wanting to be near Susan and Lucy. Well, these things, the end of his life and his affection for Timothy, they set the stage for Paul's final words to his son. And I hope again that we're going to come back to this book routinely. But what I want to do today is to look at how this chapter in particular presents us with a strange dichotomy. A side of life and a side of suffering. Beginning with the first verse of chapter one, the apostle brings into our view the definition of the gospel as a promise of life. In verse 10, Paul, he repeats this phrase. He says, Jesus, who abolished death, which is an incredible claim, by the way, he's abolished death and he's brought to life or brought to light um, life and immortality through the gospel. He's brought life and immortality to light to the gospel. Now, you'll notice how Paul emphasizes both of these terms today. Not only does Jesus unveil and make possible everlasting life, the state here, the Greek word refers to that not being able to be corrupted, incorruptibility, not being able to decay. Not only has Christ brought that to light, but Jesus also unveils And he makes possible life. And here, Paul uses the Greek word zoe. And in this, it's life in its broadest sense life that's physical, life that's biological, life that's spiritual, life that's imminent, and life that is transcendent. And when you think about it, it's an astonishing verse. That prior to Christ, we thought we knew what life was all about. We were kicking and we were screaming and we were laughing and we were working and we were playing. But Paul says here, we didn't know what life was all about until Christ unveiled it. We were in fact in the valley of shades. We had no understanding. But Christ now, he comes to present and to unveil to us true Life. This is the life that John talks about in his gospel in chapter 1. In him was zoe. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. His abundant life, it leads the way. It's the same phrase, the same word that he uses in John 10, 10. I have come that they may have zoe, life in the fullest and most abundant Sense, And that they may have that zoe abundantly. And you see, this is what makes the gospel so appealing. It is exactly the promise of life. The gospel is not properly privation, as some would twist it to be. It's not properly the promise of less. It is always The promise of more. This, by the way, is what makes Chesterton so profoundly important. And reading Chesterton so necessary, I think, for the church because he states so clearly that the gospel invites us into the thrilling rush of being alive. We learn through the gospel what it means to exist. Sin makes life prosaic. The gospel opens our life or our eyes to life itself. It shows us, in Chesterton's words from Orthodoxy, that the world is a wild and a startling place. Sin makes us bores. Grace and the life in Jesus makes us revelers, and it makes us adventurers in that place called fairyland. This is his his point, by the way, if you hearken back to that lecture on man alive. The man or the woman touched by the gospel is the holy fool who sees now that the whole universe, it is glittering and it is charged with God's life and therefore can't possibly be boring. Oh, don't you see? Says Smith as he enters into that room of Bored and gloomy folk, oh, don't you see that everything in this yard, it's sparkling like a jewel. Christ here, Paul says, has unveiled life to us. Life in the world to come, immortality, but also life now in all of its fullness. And you can see the implications now, I hope. That Christians, knowing the gospel, having experienced the gospel, should burst upon the scene of this world, should burst upon the many people in our world as those who are fully alive, as those who have tasted from the secret springs of life itself, the spring of water that Jesus talked about to that woman by the well that will bubble up from within. The gospel is the message of life and of fullness and of abundance and of Joy. Christ truly shows people what it means to thrive. What it means to be alive. What it means to know joy. Joy then and joy now. Immortality and life have been unveiled by the gospel. Now I want you to notice therefore the dichotomy. If the gospel is to be defined by life, Why is there so much pain and so much sorrow for those who have tasted his life-giving springs? One of the things you notice when reading the first chapter is the number of references to pain and to sorrow and to suffering. And not just pain and sorrow as the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We experience those as the common lot of humanity. But suffering that comes out of our adherence to the gospel. So very early on in chapter 1 and verse 4, Paul mentions Timothy's fears. We don't know what those fears, or sorry, his tears in verse 4. He mentions Timothy's tears. We don't know what caused the tears, but likely it has something to do with the difficulties of ministry. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, Paul alludes to the fact that Timothy, he was being despised by those in the church that he was trying to serve. In verse 6 of chapter 1 here, there's a reference to the cooling embers of Timothy's service to his people. Whatever's happening in the church, it is diminishing Timothy's passion for his work. In verse 7, we read about the spirit of fear that is hovering like a cloud over Timothy and is asphyxiating him or choking him. And that fear is connected to verse 8, where Paul intimates that Timothy, Timothy is being tempted to be ashamed. To be ashamed of the Lord of the Gospel, the message of Jesus, and to be ashamed of Jesus' messenger, ashamed of Paul himself. Timothy is experiencing fear in identifying with Jesus and Timothy is experiencing fear in identifying with Paul. It's as if here is that the gospel is this magnetic source and it is pulling towards itself, drawing towards itself all kinds of antagonism, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of pain into its sphere. It's springtime again, and I've been at work, hard at work in my backyard. My backyard seems to suffer through winter. It suffers, and the grass gets beaten down by the snow, and it gets beaten down by our foot, uh, foot traffic back there. And every spring, at least for the past few years, uh, there are massive patches of bare earth and slime now and mud that I have to kind of rework into some semblance of a living lawn. And so once again last week, I was out raking with a family together, It's a great family thing to do get your kids to power rake for you and we're out there raking and I I uh, I I uh, spread some new soil over the ground I seeded and I fertilized out there and just like last spring you know who shows up all over my hard work to unravel it all the birds the seed draws the birds, and I have a little wooden rattle, and I have to run out into my patio with my stocking feet and shake my wooden rattle to scare them away. But evidently, I'm not that frightening because seconds later, they came back. I was just doing it this morning. There were some quail out there eating my precious seed, and I knocked on the window and came up to the window, and they flurried off, and literally five seconds later, they forgot all about my, uh, my menacing appearance, and they were back in the lawn eating my seed. You see, Jesus describes this in his parable of the sower. The birds of the air, they come and they devour the seed of the gospel. The gospel sown draws the evil one in. And this becomes a theme in Paul's epistle. Paul states this in chapter 3, verse 12. If you desire to live a gospel life, you will suffer persecution the gospel seeds that you sow will draw the evil one into your path now in verse 8 paul makes a transition and he transitions from timothy's suffering to his own he writes in verse 8 about his predicament as a prisoner in verse 12 you'll notice he talks about his sufferings that have resulted as a direct result of his preaching end of his teaching. And then in verse 15, we learn of all those in the church who have abandoned Paul And so wide scale was his abandonment that Paul uses as a hyperbole here. And he says, all who are in Asia have turned away from me. And then in verse 19, Paul returns to the subject of his suffering in his chains. And so when you add all of Timothy's sufferings and all of his trouble in all of Paul's trouble, there's a lot of pain. And there's a lot of trouble, there's a lot of suffering in the opening chapter of this epistle. It's very honest, isn't it, to start off like this. The gospel is about surging, joyful life, Paul says. The gospel is also about this troubling pain. I want you to notice that Paul, he doesn't leave Timothy with this bare dichotomy. He doesn't leave Timothy with these two sides at this kind of yin and yang struggle. It's not Star Wars. Darkness rises and the light rises to meet it. That's not what's going on here. Rather, Paul encourages Timothy in this first chapter to embrace the hardship, verse 8. Because of the overwhelming power of God. Because of the overwhelming goodness of the gospel of Jesus. And so with every honest mention of suffering in this chapter, Paul reminds Timothy of the power of God that's at work in his life. And so when he mentions Timothy's tears, he he attaches to those tears Paul's prayers, and he reminds Timothy of the genuineness of his faith, that God had been working in Timothy's life long before he was born. God had been preparing for Timothy a way and a life through developing graciously this godly family into which he's been born. And in response to Timothy's fears, Paul talks about God's power and God's love and God's self-control that he's already given to Timothy as a gift. And in response to Timothy's reluctance to speak and to proclaim the gospel, because of the trouble that it brings, Paul reminds Timothy about how powerful and how precious that gospel is. You see, the plan for Timothy's salvation went as far back as God working in his, in his mother and in his grandmother's life. Paul now goes way back. Paul goes back so much further and he says to Timothy, look, Timothy, how far back God has been at work. God has a purpose for us and God gave us grace when, Timothy? Before the ages began. Verse 9. God gave us grace not when we decided to respond to his call. But God gave us grace in Christ before he made the universe. As if to say to Timothy, this gospel that you are so now intimidated by because of the suffering, this gospel that you are tempted to be, to be ashamed by, Timothy, look at how grand and how glorious this gospel is. It is so much bigger this plan for your salvation, it is so much more joyful and so much more precious than we can possibly comprehend because God has rushed towards us in his goodness while we were still far off. While we were still eons down the corridor of time, the Father's heart, it ran towards us and he saved us, Paul says. According to his purpose, Before the wreck of the fall, before sin, before it all, God chose to join a specific people to him as his flock. And Jesus said this in our reading today, You don't hear me. Why? Because you are not part of my flock. You are not part of those ones that God has chosen to save before he made it all. God chose to join a flock to his son so that they may become partakers of his divine nature. And what's coming out of that union with Christ? What's coming out of that union with Christ, Paul says, it is a weight of glory heavy with wonder, heavy with joy, and heavy with happiness that will make all of this present suffering seem inconsequential in comparison to what is coming for us. The gospel, Paul says to Timothy, it's precious. It's precious now because of the life it brings. It's precious then because of the unimaginable good that God has joined to it for us. And therefore, Timothy, the gospel is worth standing The gospel is worth fighting for, and the gospel is worth guarding. It's a deposit that's been given to us by God, and it's so important, Timothy, that we protect it, we proclaim it, even though the whole world comes out against us. And I said, You can't possibly say what the apostle says. You can't possibly align yourself with what Paul says. You can't possibly align yourself with what Jesus says. And they rush against us. And we stand with it. We guard it. We protect it. Because it's precious. It is the good deposit. And you see, even this guarding, even this faithful protection is by God's grace. You'll notice in verse 12, the reason that Paul gives for continuing his hold on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, it's because Paul says, not only do I know what I believe, but I know the one I believe in. I know the one that I believe in. I know him. I walk with him. I converse with him. He stands with me even when everyone else flees. And he speaks to me. And I know, Paul says, that Christ will guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to me. Christ will protect his own gospel, Paul says. Even as I strain to proclaim it, as he says to the Corinthians, in fear and in weakness in much trembling which is where most of us find ourselves today and that is a wonderful promise to hold on to in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit amen